0: is indeed worthy. And if you ever have doubt, as we engage in his word, we see that God is not just aware of what's happening in this world, but he is truly involved in everything that is going on. If you, if you think about the way that different people have viewed God throughout the years, there have been those who have thought of God as more of a, a divine clockmaker. These would have been Um, people that thought that that God made the universe, made humanity, just like the Bible says, almost like a clockmaker who makes everything in perfect to exacting detail, winds it up, closes the lid, and just lets it go. Some people believe that about God. Um, But a passage like we're going to study today helps us to understand that God does not just leave us alone. He is active and He is involved in this world. For as long as there have been preachers, there have been people telling you that the end is near. We've seen countless books and movies and other things written about when the world's going to end from the 1980s to the 1990s to 2000. Even the uh, Mayans got in on it. And we've seen people talk about the end of times pretty much always. And there's been no shortage of predictions about when Jesus was coming back or when you know the end of time would be. Often we like to kind of ignore things that are... Uh, kind of obvious realities in favor of something that's a little bit easier to believe. So if you're going on a long trip and your kids are in the back seat, you've been in the car for 15 minutes and they start asking, hey, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, most likely, if you've got 400 miles ahead of you, you're going to say, yep, it'll be 15 minutes. Because that's easier than saying, well, it's going to be about five or six hours. And then the kids, oh, what are we going to do for that time? So we tend to like to go towards that easier answer. And the easiest answer is Jesus will be back tomorrow. I mean, think about all the things that you no longer have to worry about if Jesus comes back tomorrow. I hope that he comes back tomorrow. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But if we look at Scripture, we see that there has been a lot of people throughout the years that have lived and died with that hope. And they are the better for it, but at the same time, they have lived their entire lives hoping for Jesus to return in this particular passage, Daniel has a vision and the angel actually tells him, seal this up because this is for the latter days. This is for the distant future. Daniel was given a hope, but that hope was for him to look way into the future for what God would ultimately do. Sometimes the things that God promises, even though we know they will come to pass, they may be well down the road. And so that's something that we have to be prepared for so the sermon in the sentence is this even though we do not know how long it will be until the end of all things we can rest in the resolute hope that god will accomplish all that he has promised there is not a single promise not a single thing that god has said he would do that he will go back on he will keep his promises but sometimes there is a significant distance from the time that he makes that promise to the time that he fulfills it If you believe, like many scholars do, that in Genesis chapter 3 when God was explaining to Adam and Eve about the curse and the fact that there was coming a day that that a a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, you have to recognize that that was some 2,000, maybe even more than that, 1,000 years before Jesus would be born. We know that that's kind of the first proclamation of the gospel. So yes, there may be some times when God makes a promise, and it is many, many years in the future before it is fulfilled, and so we're going to kind of see and pick up on that theme today. We're going to be reading Daniel chapter 8. We will read all except the last verse. So Daniel chapter 1 uh, or Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 all the way through verse 26. It's another vision from Daniel, um, and it still does fall into that genre like I talked about last week, apocalyptic, um, because it does use imagery and it does talk about the future. But at the same time, it is also much more easily interpretable because Daniel gives us a, a lot more details. The angel gives us details and actually names kingdoms and things along those lines. So it's much more beneficial for us to see exactly... Um, what's going on here, and then we can see parts of this prophecy fulfilled and maybe parts of it still waiting in the future. So really, really interesting to dig into this. So Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. Um, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. And uh, he did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came, uh, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. He ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of the heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, and the regular burnt offerings were taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." And a host will be given over uh, to it together uh, with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. He said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Then I, Daniel, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard the man's voice say, between the banks of the Uli, and it called. Uh, between the banks of the Uli, and it called. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So I came, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, "Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end." And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the division for it refers to many days from now. Okay, so as we get into this, we, we definitely see the, the ram, and so we're gonna look at it in terms of the ram, and then we're gonna look at it in terms of the goat, and then we're gonna look, uh, or, or the rams and the goat, and then we're gonna specifically look at that little horn and see what this has to do. Now there is a tremendous amount of history in this and I'm going to try to keep it as, as, as simple and summarized as possible while still covering enough to show you exactly what this is talking about. So unlike last week, last week there's these monsters and, and, and they rise up from the sea and we don't really necessarily need to identify them. These monsters or animals are actually identifiable. The angel identifies them for us. So we can kind of track this history and see what's going on here. So... Right away we can see that this vision is different because Daniel mentions locations. He mentions uh, things enough to where it would be easily identifiable even to some extent if the angel had not have interpreted it for us. Um, as we are following along in this vision and the an- angelic interpretation, what I'm going to try to do is blend the two together instead of saying these are all the things that he said and then these are the things that the angel answered. I'm going to try to blend that together so that we can see it um, a little bit quicker and hopefully get to the point with with a pretty strong uh, emphasis on it more quickly we can see that this ram is that Medo-Persian empire. And so for a while, the Medes and the Persians, they were one empire, but they were they were obviously separate. Um, so the, the vision of the ram with the one horn that's longer, that's the Persians because the Persians became more powerful and it came up second. The Medes were first, but the Persians came up and they were more powerful. And when the Persians went across the world, they didn't find anybody to stop them. So So they fought... They were great. They were powerful. Um, if you study Persian history, the, the history of that empire, um, they became as, as big and as powerful as any empire in antiquity and even larger than some of them. So they were a very powerful empire um, and, and really had no challenger for a long time not only were they good in battle, they were also very smart because they lived much more tolerantly with those that they had conquered. So if you had a different religion than them, they allowed you to continue to practice that. But everybody in their culture, even though they were more tolerant, they kind of let you be who you were in their culture. There was one free person in all the empire. And that was the, that was their, their emperor, their king. No one else really was. Everybody else was technically a slave to their king. And so that was, um, that was not necessarily the greatest look, but in, in that time and age, it was a little bit more understandable. So after this, we see the goat, and the goat comes along from the west. So the, the Persian Empire originates in the east and travels west and north and south, and we, and we know that this Persian Empire had control um, not only of the area around Babylon, but most of the area in Turkey, uh, and, and to some extent down towards um, Egypt. Well, when when the goat comes along, it represents Greece, as the angel told us. And we know that this first king was not the first Greek king, but the first one that mattered, apparently, in this scene, uh, was Alexander the Great. And as he travels, he goes so fast that it says his feet didn't even touch the ground. And this was very true uh, as far as who Alexander the Great was and how he conducted his wars. Really, Alexander the Great at first, was not so interested in conquering the Persian Empire as he was in killing the Persian king. That was his main goal. And so he chased the Persian king all over Persia. But meanwhile, he's also destroying the empire. Um, so that was his ultimate goal. So he lives and, and fights. And for 10 years, he conquers virtually the entire known world. We know that he made it all the way to India. Um, and then he traveled back, basically, to Babylon there's no telling what he died from. I, I've watched a bunch of documentaries and it's everything from alcohol poisoning to so somebody killing him or, or any other number of things. But anyway, in 10 years he dies. Now we know this was appointed by God. This was planned by God that he would die. And so he builds this massive empire in the span of 10 years. He goes from you know basically a, a provincial king of, of Macedonia and Greece and really kind of barely hanging on to that at times all the way to emperor of the world, as far as they knew it at that time, in 10 years. Well, he dies. And so in his place, and, and this you could pull it from any history book, but we see it here in Scripture, there were four generals. And all of Alexander's empire was broken up into four different kingdoms. I mean, you cannot get more directly, here is prophecy, here is Scripture, and here is history, because he had four generals that took over the different areas of his, um, his empire. All we really are interested in is first Ptolemy. Ptolemy had the, the Egypt or, or, or that, that southern part. So he had Egypt and up to what would be Israel today. Um, and then the Seleucids, which originally had basically Syria, Turkey, and, and, and further, to the, further to the east over toward what he had taken toward India. So that's all they had. Um, But what we see in in this passage is that after a while of those four horns, one little horn rises up. So the Greeks never had the same kind of power or the same kind of um, just the charismatic ability that they did under Alexander the Great. But the Seleucid Empire begins to get powerful. So they take all of what we would think of as Syria and Israel and all of that whole region. They take that from the, the line from Ptolemy, which was the Egypt people. And so they have this line. And so a guy named Antiochus Third has all of this area. And they are very tolerant as well. They will continue to let you worship any way you want to and those kinds of things. Um, but what we see is that things change and so i've got ahead of myself i'm in that little um the little horn already i'm going to stop there and just kind of uh, back up a minute alexander the great by historical standards he's one of the greatest military strategists ever now he was a little bold individually uh, he was bad about getting on his horse and riding right into the middle of the enemy line. And then his, his version of the Praetorian Guard had to follow around behind him and scramble around to make sure he didn't get himself killed. But his strategy was as good as anybody had ever seen at that particular time. And so he is known. You don't get the title great for no good reason. So he has this title great, right? In history, he's celebrated as one of the best, but in the scheme of, of, of God's plan of the world, he's basically a footnote. He rises for a purpose, which is to trample the ram, the Persians, and then he is broken and split. And so it helps us to remember that all of these powerful nations, all of these powerful people, no matter how they gain their power, through trick or through, through military might or through some other means, they are players in a play that God himself is writing. They come on the scene when he commands it, and they leave the scene when he commands it as well. Alexander the Great and all the others that, 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 that have been mentioned or have existed, they all come and they go the way that God's, God plans. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall constantly, but only The kingdom of the Lord endures forever. That's something that we have to remember. When we look at America or when we look at any other country, we know that for always, for all of history, countries have risen and they have fallen. They have come and they have went. But only God's kingdom lasts forever. The message of the ram and goat is that no matter how big and bad the monsters are that we face, they will fall at the appointed time. It may not be the most convenient time for us, but they will fall. God will have his victory no matter what it is. And, and I would say that that does apply for personal life and for public. But we have to remember that God is actively in control. God is the one that raised up the ram, and God is the one that raised up the goat, and God is the one that brought them both low. We have to remember that because when you talk about the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, those are, those are big things. And historians look at that and think these are some of the greatest times of all of humanity. God directed that. And when it was time, God wiped them off the stage and started over with a new empire. For whatever reason, God is in control. That's the most important thing that we remember. The Jews were suffering in exile, or the Jews who were suffering in exile, and we who struggle to find our place in this world today both take hope in the knowledge that God is the king maker and the king breaker. Whatever is going on in your life, you might be under some power that you can't personally overcome. That's where we as Christians, we find our consolation in our faith, we find our strength in in the hope of Jesus Christ, and we wait. We will never, there will never be a force on earth so great that the Lord cannot control it. You know, you look at some of the cultural movements throughout the past. You look at some of the things that are being said now and it seems like, wow, everybody's on board with this. So how, are, how is this going to be defeated? Or, or there's too many of the others for, for the conservative or whatever it is, however you feel, God's still in control. He, no force is too great for him. And so always, always remember that. So now let's look at the little horn. So I gave you a little bit of the history. Um, so when the empire breaks up into four pieces, the, there's a little bit of struggle. But eventually, what would be known as the Seleucid Empire takes control of where Israel is. And, and that's what we really need to know. Um, from uh, this part of the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire, would arise a ruler eventually named Antiochus IV. He called himself the, the uh, Epiphany. He was supposed to be God-revealed or something along those lines. So that's what he thought of himself from the beginning, okay? So he was not next in line to rule when he became ruler. He actually, by cunning and by trick, took the power, the authority from his nephew. Um, but he would cement his place in power through military success. He was very successful uh, in a military way. And actually, the Seleucid Empire would reach its peak of power during the the reign of Antiochus. But also, it would be very much humbled uh, by a Jewish rebellion that we'll talk about here in just a minute. Now, Antiochus went away from the typical Greek way of thinking. The Greek way of thinking had been let people have whatever worship they have. Let people have whatever God they have. We just want to show them that we're better than they are. That was the basic thing. Our language is better than you. Our religion is better than yours. Our art is better than yours. Our architecture is better than yours. That was their whole goal. We just want to show you, you can be how you want to be, but we're better than you. So that was their goal. That was what they wanted to show. But Antiochus went a step further and he said, since we're better than you, Just stop doing your stuff and and just worship and live like us. And so that's where things began to be a problem. Now, if you've heard from other New Testament studies about Hellenistic Jews, there were some people living in Israel that began to buy into this. They began to think, yes, we should live like the Greeks. We should worship like the Greeks. We should speak their language. We should do all of the things that the Greeks are doing. And so there were even some times where basically fake high priests were set up and they began to follow some of these patterns. Now, the, the scripture, the vision that, that Daniel has mentions that some of the things that happen during this time where the little horn is, is up and doing what he's doing, he's deceiving, like knocking down stars and, and deceiving some of the divine. He, he even attacks the Prince of Peace at certain times. Well, what happened in, in, in the historical accounts that we have is that he set up his own high priest in Israel, uh, in the temple, and at times they would even sacrifice things to Zeus. They they began to go after more of an emperor or, or, or uh, emperor cult type worship. And so they were worshiping Zeus, they were worshiping Antiochus. They were living a life where it was more about what the state wanted than what God had demanded and what God had required. And so they really had submitted to the culture. It was something that they chose to do. There were faithful people. There were people who never compromised, and those are the ones we'll talk about in a moment. But you have to realize that there were people that, that, that surrendered to this. There were other Jews who absolutely would not abandon the Lord. And so Antiochus increasingly grew more and more aggressive in what he did. One thing that he did was burnt a pig on the altar. So you know that the Jews believed that pigs were unclean. They were not suitable to be sacrificed. So he burnt a pig on the altar... He put an idol of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. They rededicated the temple to the Greek gods instead of to the one true holy God. And so this is that desecration that he talks about, that the temple is desecrated, the, worship, the burnt offerings are stopped, all of this. That's what, that's what happened to, to kind of make that break. And so this was such a great offense that it inspired a rebellion the family that started the rebellion were the Maccabeans. And so the father was Matthias, and he was a, he was a priest that refused to make any kind of false sacrifice well, after him, he had three sons. And so these three sons throughout their lives led the rebellion. And their their name, the Maccabeans, is, is Hebrew for hammer. So these Hebrew hammers were actually able to, to knock back the Seleucid Empire, to knock the Greek influence out of um, uh, Judah, at least. And they eventually established a dynasty. It's called the Hasmonean Dynasty. It was the last time that the Jews independently ruled themselves until 1948. So they they ruled themselves for that period of time, for about 100 years. Then the Romans came in and took over. But during that time, there was a restoration. There was a revival. Now, here's one thing to point out. Um, The only part of this that you can't literally... Open a history book and open the Bible side by side and say, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. Like so specific that God was writing history before it happened. The only thing that gets a little strange is that 200 or 2,300 days. So if you do the math on that, that's like 6.3 years. It wasn't 6.3 years between the abomination of desolation where, where Antiochus Epiphanes burns the pig and, and places the statue of Zeus and, and the end when the temple is rededicated in the Maccabeans. It wasn't that, and so... It's probably something that's lost in history that backs up a little bit further. At some point when the, the morality or the faithfulness of the Jews broke previously, in, in other words, although people were making burnt offerings that supposedly followed the order and the regulations of Scripture, at some point before that, they had broken spiritually. And so that's, that's at, we can't find that exact date or that exact event. God's not wrong. We just can't find that exact event. To, to know when, when it actually happened. But what we do know is that God prophesied both the rise of the Persians, and remember this was during the reign of Belshazzar, which was before the Persians and Medes took over the Babylonian Empire, so God prophesied the Persians, he prophesied the Greeks, and nobody was even thinking about the Greeks at that particular time, and he prophesied the Maccabean Rebellion. All of this was there in Daniel before any of this ever happened. We know for a fact Daniel was written before these events. So that is an amazing thing to see those things happen. Um, at some point after the struggle between the Maccabeans, the temple was cleansed, worship was restored. All these events uh, fulfill prophecy as given. But we know that there's even more to the story. So Antiochus is that oppressor. But, but he, and that's definitely a historical event. We can look at it. You can read about it in your world book you can you can watch history channel documentaries about it it happened but he also represents that 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 other force that has always been opposing believers always been opposing the saints daniel refers to them as the saints and i think that's great because he's not saying you know genetic racial jews he's saying those people that are faithful to god and and that there has always been some opposer or some oppressor so this king he was cruel he killed many, and, and it seems like he escalated his killing toward the end, but ultimately he could not stand before God. And so he could not find victory over the Lord or his people. In this, though, some of the things that happened were part of God's plan, God's purpose, and some of the things that happened were punishment. And we have to recognize that there is both in God's plan, there are both of those things in God's plan, and we have to be, um, we have to strive to make sure that that if our if we suffer, we're suffering because it's part of God's plan, not because of God's punishment. But I think that there are some situations where we might have brought some of that uh, as a not as this church, but as the church, we might have brought some of that upon ourselves. So the significance of the little horn is to remind us that we may come under direct persecution. As We try to serve the Lord that may happen. It has happened in virtually every generation of Christians before us So there is a chance that it will happen to us We know that in the case of Israel They had the motions of worship down to an art, but they never achieved the motive for worship so they could do what they were told to do in the Old Testament. They could have the right animals. They could have the right clothes. They could have the right location. They could go through all the proper steps, but there was something about that motive that they were missing. Because of this, the Lord allowed them to be punished by an evil force for a time. There was that time that that it was allowed, but then there was a victory afterwards. So when that appointed time was over, God granted His people the victory over the evil one and restored them to a right standing with Him. This is a pattern. We see it it all the way back in the Old Testament. We see it in Judges. We see it all throughout the the, the Scripture that when God's people are not faithful the way they're supposed to be, He allows a punishment, and and then afterwards He allows a restoration. There are Christians who have suffered for their faith, But we may enter a season soon where we suffer for our faithlessness and sinfulness. Here's the thing. There were Jews living in this time period that accepted the Greek ways of life. And not everything that the Greeks believed were bad, but there was enough bad. There was enough bad. And One thing that I've loved, particularly the Baptist faith and message, when it describes the Word of God, it says that it is truth without any mixture of error. That would be a really great way for us to live our lives. Truth without any mixture of error. Now, when Daniel, in this vision, he sees what the little horn does, one thing he says is is that it casts down truth. It tries to destroy truth. We live in a time frame where there are a lot of people that like to deny truth. Here's where the real problem for us as believers comes in. I could stand here and tell you how bad the world is, but you know how bad the world is. We live in a time as believers where there are some churches, some church leaders, some people that are agreeing with the world. That is not the way God wants us to be. We cannot become Hellenistic Jews in that sense. We cannot take on the, the characteristics and the culture and the behaviors of the world and expect to still walk in the light and favor of God. We can't do that. That is a contradiction. And so, for us, if the world is saying something, we have to recognize it for what it is it's evil. And so even when the world says something right, you have to remember that that, that may be true, but there is a mixture of error in there, and that is a problem for us. We can't have that. We cannot have that. We must reject the world's truth because it has mixtures of error with it and seek the truth of God in His Word. That is how we must live. Because the church, if it compromises... If it just compromises a little, we have still lost something. It is just as evil for us to agree with sin as it is for us to commit it. There are church leaders that would say that certain times abortions are okay. There are church leaders who would say certain times homosexuality or gender changes are okay. There are church leaders who would agree in certain situations to most of the sins that the world has currently popularized. And what I would tell you is that that agreement, especially from a a position of leadership in the church, means that you are condoning it, even for your own people. You are leading and encouraging Christians to walk down that path of unrighteousness. That is a wicked and grievous sin that God will answer. We have to recognize that. And so what is the vision of, of Daniel here? One, the church must cleanse itself and hope in Jesus, despite the trials that we are facing in the coming days or will face in the coming days, we've got to be ready for that, okay? We've got to be ready for that. The reality is every time that the Jews suffered because of the sins of the many, there were a faithful few. And you know what? A lot of times they had to suffer right along with them. And so we have to be prepared for that. So when we talk about um, the, what's coming ahead, what, what is next for the church? So we'll look for hope in the blackest of nights. Some of us are already in that black night, and others may be joining soon. Some people, even, even among our number, are already going through difficult times. And, and, and look, it doesn't have to be Alexander the Great to give you a hard time. It doesn't have to be Antiochus Epiphanes to give you a hard time. If you're going through a difficult time, that, that is that dark night. Okay, We have to recognize that. We will endure the time of testing by remembering the promises of God. Whether you're in it now or or you're in it later, you must remember that that it is through remembering those promises of God that will help us through. Daniel chapter 8, for us now... is is really, really helpful because we can see that God used the same imagery that he used in chapter 7 or some of the same imagery. He uses it in chapter 8 and we've seen nearly all of this fulfilled completely, like down to how many divisions there would be in the Greek Empire before anybody knew that there could be a Greek Empire. When Daniel's writing this, there's not even a country of Greece. They're all little city-states. They're all independent. They're all fighting against each other. They're not unified have to realize that that this is true prophecy fulfilled exactly the way that God said it would happen all the other promises of God are just as certain as the one that's already recorded in history consider the cross of Christ for our rebellion he suffered and died but after that dark night he was resurrected into marvelous light okay so does God punish the sins, even when they are the sins of his people? Yes, he does. Look at the cross. The cross is that representation of our sin and the punishment of our sin. When people talk about being forgiven by grace, a lot of times we wonder, well, where does the sin go? Well, it was paid for by Jesus. That's the picture. But if you do not believe in Jesus, your sin is not paid for by Jesus. And, and we understand that. He suffered and died, but after that, He was resurrected in the marvelous light. We have to recognize that Jesus, He has gone before us to show us the way. Sometimes we're going to suffer for things that we have done. Sometimes we're going to suffer because of what others are choosing to do. There will be suffering in our lives. And in that time, in the time of suffering, we have to remember the promises of God. We may be going through persecution or punishment, but God has a plan for its end, and he will restore us to himself after the evil of these days. That's something that we must remember, is that whatever his plan is, it is a plan. It is part of what he's doing, and he will restore us. So if you're here this morning, you're walking through that dark night, and you say, this is, this is one of the roughest seasons of my life, then God has a plan, and he is working through that, and he will restore you to himself at the end of that plan. If we are here this morning and we haven't started walking through that dark night know that there may be suffering in your future. It may be some form of persecution, people being hostile toward the church, and as we are faithful to the church, they will come after us. That is already happening across the world, so it is not unreasonable to believe that that might happen. But also, as I look at some of the things that are happening in the church, and and I could even narrow that down to some elements of the Southern Baptist Convention, I would say that there is evil in our midst, and if there is evil in the bride of Christ... He will persecute it and He will cleanse it. That is how He cleans it. You know how you clean a rug? used to, you took it out and you beat it just about to death and then it was clean. Well, what if that's how God chooses to clean the church? We may face something just like that to purify us, to get the dirt out and to make us stand clean and pure, blameless, spotless before the Lord when we stand before Him. It may come to that. It may come to that. And it may be God ordains it. Don't let that shake your faith in God. Realize that God will see you all the way through it. And he will be with you all the way to the other end. And I just want to encourage you, even if the Lord tarries, even if there is a long time before Jesus comes back, because remember, the things that that, that Daniel saw were hundreds of years in the future. And so even if we are looking at hundreds of years before Jesus comes back at this point, We can endure. We can wait because God has given us that ability to hope in him. We can make it. We can stand. And that's the message of this particular chapter is stand. Even when it seems it's a long ways off, stand because we are with God. And he is with us and he will carry us through. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together. And I pray that you instill us with the hope that will get us through our dark and difficult times. If we survey this world, we would not find a reason for hope. If we really and truly search our own hearts, we may not even find a reason for hope there. But when we look at your word... And we see the promises that you have made. Those that you have kept and those that are, we are still waiting to see the fulfillment of, we know you are faithful. Give us that hope, Lord. And Lord, we know that there are those around us, maybe even those around us on a daily basis that don't have the same hope that we do. I just ask that we would have the opportunity and the boldness to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Because there is none like Him. Every kingdom you have made and every kingdom you have unmade. But your kingdom lasts forever. I pray that we can all be joyful citizens in that kingdom and extend that invitation to those who are not. For we truly do have a reason to hope, but we also have a reason to hurry. Because just as the time was uncertain in Daniel's day, the time is uncertain now. We don't know how long we have. We hope that you return tomorrow, but we know that you may tarry. In the meantime, I pray that we can be useful to you, be faithful to you, and always depend on the hope that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.